Well, hey, everyone, thanks so much for being here today, whether you're in the room with us right now or watching online at home or traveling or wherever you are. We're so glad that you can be with us to worship God together. Let me start off by introducing myself. If you're new here, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church, and today I have the privilege of bringing the message to you, which I am very excited about. Before I do that, there's something else we're really excited about, and I just want to take a moment to uh, give a bit of a follow-up and an encouragement, maybe a challenge to some of you. Last month, was super fun for us. We had a lot of great things happen at the church, and a couple of weeks ago, we had an awesome Sunday where we got to talk all about the church plant in Peru. The Christian Missionary Alliance is planting a church in Huamachuco, Peru, and we, through Compassion International, are partnering with them, and we got to raise all the funds to build that church. So last year, you guys raised over $100,000 to be able to build the church building and the student center, and and that was absolutely awesome, and and they're going to be working to get all that stuff going. But then a couple of weeks ago, we had the chance to sponsor 150 children who live in the area of that church so that this church and compassion together will be able to provide all the things those kids need. So education and food and clothing and um, activities and spiritual mentoring all the things they need to to not only provide for them physically, but also provide for them spiritually. And and so you had an opportunity to sponsor those kids. And I'm happy to report that as of today, every single kid eligible in the program has been sponsored. There was one left that today got sponsored. So that is awesome. And thank you. You've got to understand what this means to that community because (laughs) the, the financial investment that you are making as a church into this little community in northern Peru is going to have ripple effects that will be felt for decades. And it's going to be way beyond those 150 kids. Because think about it. This is a church plant in a, in a more kind of remote area. Not super remote, but a little remote. And, and right away, they're going to have 150 kids, all from different families, because they typically don't allow siblings from the same family to both be part of the program because they want to reach as many families as possible. And so 150 different kids, 150 different families right away are going to be a part of this church's ministry and going to be impacted and blessed by this church. And all the resources that provide for that child are taking away from the obligation that the family has for that child. And so now the family's resources stretch farther. And so it's going to have an impact economically on the, on the families and on the community. And then, of course, there's the spiritual aspect of it. And if all the kids in this community are being cared for and loved on by this church with followers of Jesus, then imagine the influence that's going to have on their parents and their grandparents and all the people in the community. It's just an incredible thing that we get to be a part of. And so a couple of weeks ago and today in the last two weeks, you have um, pledged about $70,000 a year and support for these kids. That's amazing. When you add up all the sponsorships, that doesn't even include any extra birthday gifts, Christmas gifts, that kind of stuff that you can do. That takes it way over the top. But that is just so cool. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for jumping on board with us. Um, This was a a, a plan and a vision a couple of years ago. And now to see it actually start to to come to reality is an amazing thing. And then in the next couple of years, hopefully, to be able to take trips there and minister with this church and to this community, it's it's really a, a special, unique thing. But I said there was a challenge in here, and this is the challenge, because a couple of years ago when I was in Ecuador and I was having dinner with some young adults who grew up as sponsored kids, they told me how important it was for their sponsors to send them messages. And I kind of felt, thought, you know, eh, is it that big of a deal? Does it really matter? But they said, oh, no, it matters. It matters. And one of the guys next to me at the table, he said, 
that he and, uh, and one of his relatives were both sponsored. And his sponsor almost never sent him messages. And this is a big deal because what happens is they, they get together in a big group and they have mail call and they, they get out all the stacks of letters and okay, so-and-so, here's your letter and so-and-so, here's your letter and everybody's cheering, it's a big celebration. And this guy rarely got any letters, but his relative got letters uh, more regularly. And so after he was done reading them, he would pass them on to this guy so that he could read them as well. And so they were actually both reading letters from the same sponsor that weren't actually written to this guy, but it meant so much to him. And it's just to demonstrate how important those messages are. So if you sponsor a child, and I don't care if it's through, uh, through compassion or through some other ministry, if it's, if it's with a church plant in Huamachuca or somewhere else in the world, just know that those messages you send mean a, a lot to them. So we sent messages to all three of the kids that we're sponsoring this week, and we had our kids help us write those messages to them. Compassion makes it super easy. You just do it through the app, and you can write a quick message. You can choose the stationery that it prints out on. There's a spot there where they will translate it into the Spanish language for you. They make it as easy as possible. We just have to do it because it really is going to make a difference. We want this to be more than just a financial investment. This needs to be a personal relational investment as well. And this is the best way that you can do that. So that's my little PSA for you this morning. Please make sure that you do that. I also want to give you a preview of what the rest of the year is going to look like for our services. So just so that you kind of know what to expect, next week we're going to have a special service with a focused time of worship and prayer. It's going to be a guided prayer service. And, and this is the type of thing where it's going, to, it's going to be a lot better if you're in the room. So online viewers, we love you, and we're so glad that you can join us through this medium. But if you can be here physically next week, it's going to be a better experience for you and, and hopefully more meaningful for you. If you can be here praying with us in the room, that's going to make more sense next week. Uh, but we do hope that you'll be here for that. It's going to be a great time of worshiping and praying together. The week after that is a special Sunday. Anybody know why? See, if it was Mother's Day, everybody would be like, Mother's Day. Father's Day, two people are like, I think it's Father's Day, maybe, I don't know. Do we do anything for that? So Father's Day, still an important day. We're gonna have a, a service all themed around dads and the impact that they have on our family, so make sure you're here for that. And after that, we're gonna launch into a new series for the summer. It's just a summer series. It's gonna be very conversational. It'll be based all around the kind of common questions that we get asked all the time. And, and we wanna answer some of those questions. It's called People Are Asking. Here's a sneak peek.
So we start that series in three weeks. We're going to have those chairs up here. We're going to have some panel discussions and conversations and messages focused around the questions people ask us a lot. I don't know if it'll be all the questions in that video. That's just sort of a teaser. We're actually inviting you to submit questions if there's something you would like covered. You probably got an email this week inviting you to do that. If you read our emails, then maybe you saw that link in there. If you don't get our emails, you can go to efree.org slash updates and sign up. We'll send another one this week. Would love to hear your thoughts on questions that you would like answered. Now, there's no way we're going to be able to get through all of them, so um, we'll just try to pick the ones that are the, the most popular, and please don't submit like 10 entries with you know fake names with your question again and again and again, but we are going to try to pick the ones that seem to resonate with a lot of people and cover those and have some interesting conversations here about them. And then after the People Are Asking series, we are going to launch into another book study, and this is going to be a big one. I'm actually really, really excited about this one. I've been waiting to do this one for a long time. It's going to be a study of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a big book, and it's going to take us a long time. So just buckle up, because we're going to start it in August of this year, and it's going to take us through 2023, and I don't know exactly how long it's going to last, but it's going to be a long time. We'll have some breaks along the way to keep it fresh, but it's going to be a really, really great series together. So that's the roadmap for 2022, and I hope that you'll be with us through the whole thing. It's going to be really great. We'll learn a lot about God's Word and, uh, and hopefully help us know how He wants us to live as well. Let's go ahead and, and spend a little time in prayer, preparing our hearts for the message today. If you'd just bow your head with me. God, thank you for your word and thank you for how you teach us through it. Even though it was written thousands of years ago, it is still so relevant and applicable to our lives today. And I pray that that would be so evident as we go through the book of Ruth today, God. I pray that you'd reveal some insights to us that are just what we need to hear. Something that, that maybe has been gnawing on us, maybe something that's been bothering us, something that we need to get right with you, God. I pray that you would just expose it through your Holy Spirit today and through your word. God, may this sink in deep and teach us how you want us to live. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is really bittersweet. We end the series on Ruth today. And it has been an awesome series. I've learned so much going through this. I hope you have too. Um, if you, if you wanna share what God has been teaching you through the, the study of Ruth, you can do that. Just send an email to pastor at efree.org and some of you have already done that, shared how it's just hit at the perfect time in your life or, or that week's message has been just the right fit for what's happened to you. Um, we love hearing those kinds of stories, so feel free to let us know if there's something God has taught you or some insight that he's brought you through this study of Ruth. But we are wrapping it up today in chapter four. And so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Ruth chapter four. And if you're just starting with us, let me give you a little bit of review to make sure you're caught up to speed. Ruth is a Moabite woman, grew up in Moab, and this outsider family of Jewish people moved there because of a famine back in Israel. And Ruth ends up married to a Jewish man. But before long, her Jewish father-in-law and her Jewish husband and her Jewish brother-in-law all die. And that leaves three widows. And these three widows, Naomi, the mother, mother-in-law of Ruth, and then Ruth and then Orpah, Orpah and Ruth are both Moabite women. They have no husbands anymore and no good means of provision. Uh, but Naomi learns that there's food now back in Israel, so she's going to head back there. And she takes Ruth with her. Ruth decides to leave her family in Moab, go back to Israel to live with and care for Naomi. And the two of them go back there. 
And when they go back there, it's a, it's, there's a warm welcome for them, but Naomi doesn't reciprocate because she's a very bitter woman at this point. And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi means pleasantness. But now I'm, I wanna be known as bitter because the, the, what the Lord has done to me, she says. God did all these terrible things to me, taking my sons and my husband, and, uh, and now I'm just bitter. So, so they're back there, but their situation isn't great. They don't have a lot of money. They're basically broke, and, and Ruth ends up scavenging for food in the fields, and she meets this wealthy farmer named Boaz, and through an amazing sequence of events, Ruth ends up marrying Boaz. And that's kind of where we are at in the story right now. Boaz has become the kinsman redeemer. He's this relative. If you've, if you've followed with us throughout the last few weeks, he's a relative who was able to marry Ruth and redeem the land and the family and provide for Ruth and Naomi. And it's an amazing story of, of redemption and wholeness that happens at the end of all of this. And I don't know if you remember, but on Mother's Day, I, not in the part of the Ruth series, but very similar, I gave an example of a Japanese art form called kintsugi. And kintsugi is where there's this, if there's some important vase or, or teapot or, or plate or something very valuable that's um, some kind of chinaware or something like that, and it breaks, you can take it to a kintsugi master in Japan, and they will, over the course of several months, Put it back together with a special kind of lacquer, and then they'll cover it with gold dust, and you end up with a piece of pottery that doesn't hide the cracks and the damage. It actually shows off the cracks and the damage through this gold dust and creates something more beautiful than it was before. And so it actually demonstrates how the cracks and the brokenness that was there is, is part of what makes this a new thing, something that is different, but something that is beautiful and in some ways even better than it was before. It's a beautiful picture of what happens in our lives and what happens in the life of Ruth and Naomi, especially here at the end of this book, because they've been through some significant challenges. They've had a lot of losses in their life. In fact, I, I want to just ask you and, and get your thoughts on this. What were some of the losses that Ruth and Naomi experienced over this journey that we followed the last few weeks? And for them, that was, you know, over a decade. What are some of the losses they experienced? Loss of family, specifically loss of husbands, loss of sons. Yeah, what else? Provision. Loss of provision, yeah. All their resources, uh, they didn't have any way to provide for themselves anymore. It's why they're in this situation. Loss of security, absolutely. They don't have anyone to care for, protect them. And that's a big deal, especially at this time in the world. What else? What did they lose? Home. Yeah, lost home. And you think about Naomi, she lost her home in Israel when they moved to Moab, and now she's losing her home in Moab, and Ruth's losing her home, and they're moving back. What else? Faith. Yeah, Naomi, she still believes in God. She just believes that God does bad things to her. <laughs> so she's lost faith in the goodness of God. Anything else? Any other losses you can think of? I wrote down a few things, most of them you've already, already touched on. Here's one you may not have thought of. What about the loss of motherhood for Ruth? Here Ruth for 10 years in Moab is unable to have children. And what a loss that was, especially in this day and age when having kids, that was the identity and the value of a wife uh, in that, in culturally. It was so important to have kids. And if you didn't have kids, it was viewed as maybe the gods were cursing you sort of a thing. And uh, the favor of the gods, especially in Moab, was if you were able to have kids. What a, what a stereotype and a, 
and a challenge that would have been for her to, to not have motherhood. Loss of hope for Naomi, loss of future for both Ruth and Naomi. I mean, you think about it, um, Naomi lost hope in the future. She's like, just my life is bitter from here on out. And Naomi's actual future was definitely in jeopardy because um, you know, she now doesn't have the provision and the care of her husband or her sons who would normally be able to care for her. But she does have Ruth. So Ruth is there to care for Naomi as Naomi grows older. Who's there to care for Ruth? Ruth has left her family and her support network and, and everything to come be in Israel. And so now she doesn't really have any family relative coming after her, any children coming after her to help care for her as she grows old. So their future is really in great jeopardy here. And then another one is loss of reputation. You know, think about Naomi coming back to this warm welcome and her friends are like, yay, it's Naomi. And, and she doesn't exactly feel the same way. But then for Ruth to have to go to Naomi and say, hey, can I go glean the fields, the corners of the fields that are left for the poor people? Can I go reveal to everybody that we're poor is basically what she's saying. And so they're in a completely different situation now than the last time Naomi was in Bethlehem. And now they are counted among the poor people. And that's a reputational loss. That they have. So there's a tremendous amount of loss that these two experience. And there's a lot of loss that you and I have in our lives. A lot of valleys that we go through where we feel like this is such a, a huge hit to us and such a heavy burden to bear and a big loss that we experience. And, and the amazing thing we will see today is how God redeems all of that. What we're going to see in these last few verses of Ruth is sort of at the end of the movie when all the loose ends get tied up. And sometimes they do that through cheesy ways where you just go, come on, really? He had a superpower the whole time. Why wasn't he using his laser eyes halfway through the movie when he needed to? You know, it's like, why did all these loose ends get tied up in a really weird and awkward way? And then there are other movies where they don't tie up the loose ends at all. And you're like, well, he just, Luke just lost his hand. What's going to happen now at the end of Empire Strikes Back? It's a great Star Wars movie, but it just leaves you wondering, like, what's up with, I remember as a kid watching that going, what's the deal with Darth Vader, you know? And it's not until you get to Return of the Jedi that you start to fill in some of those pieces for you. But Ruth is a story where all the, the loose ends kind of get tied up really neatly here at the end. So it's a very satisfying conclusion and ending to it. Even more satisfying to us today than it would have been to the people who originally read this and heard this read to them. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. So let's start in Ruth chapter 4 verse 13. And let's read the conclusion of this story. Remember, Boaz and Ruth have just become married. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. We don't see a lot of God's specific actions laid out for us in the book of Ruth. There's a lot of assumption that God is working behind the scenes. But here we have a very specific thing that he is doing. He enables her to become pregnant. See, she had some kind of medical condition that left her barren. She was unable to have kids. And God stepped in in a miraculous way and made it possible for her right here to have a son. Now think for a minute about how agonizing it must have been for Ruth to spend those 10 years in Moab married, unable to have children in a society where your value as a woman is often based on how many kids are you able to have and to have none I have a single kid. And I don't know if she had miscarriages along the way. I don't know if she experienced that kind of trauma as well. But what an agonizing thing for her to go through. And yet here, now, at just the right time, God has enabled her to have kids. It's a, it's a miracle. It took a long time to get here, but it was worth the wait. And here's the first point I want you to take away from today. 
Don't think that God's delay means God's not good. Don't think that God's delay means God's not good. There are probably situations in your life where you've experienced some kind of loss, you're in some kind of valley, and you are praying about it all the time, and you are asking God, when, 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 when? When are you gonna bring this to resolution? When are you gonna solve this problem? When are you gonna actually give me the thing that I've been asking you for? And and the whole while, God is delaying. But it doesn't mean he's not good. How many times must Ruth have agonized over the fact that she couldn't have kids, and yet now it all pays off because her first kid, her firstborn son, is with this man, Boaz, who she now loves and who loves her, and they have a great relationship, and it's an amazing thing that happens here, but it took a long time, 10 to 15 years, before we get to this point of her wondering, when God, why God, how long? Don't think that God's delay means God's not good. It's really easy to look back on the valleys of our life now after we're through them and look back and see how God was working all along, what he was teaching us, maybe why he waited as long as he did. But if you're in the middle of a valley right now, it's not so easy. If you're in the middle of a valley, you're wondering what what is over that other side? When am I finally gonna get up out of this kind of thing? And that's when we need to have faith and trust in God that just at the right time, he is going to deliver. He's gonna show us why this is all worthwhile. That's how he works. It reminds me of Galatians chapter six, verse nine, where we read, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Ruth didn't give up. And it took years, many years, before she could look back and see how God was working in her life all along. But he was. He was doing something that she couldn't see and and was gonna redeem the situation in a way that she couldn't understand. But it was worth it all in the end. Now, next, we have a couple of statements made by the women in the town. So as we wrap this up, you'll remember when Naomi came back into Bethlehem, the women made some proclamations. Well, here at the end, they're going to make some more proclamations. They have two of them. And in the last message, you saw the elders of the town make a proclamation to Boaz and some blessing to Boaz. Well, now it's the ladies' turn. And the women are going to make two statements. We're going to look at them both. The first one is in verse 14 of Ruth 4. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. Make a note of that. The Lord has now provided a redeemer for your family. May may this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has better to you has been better to you than seven sons. Now, you remember how Naomi was greeted when she first returned to Bethlehem, right? You know, welcomed warmly, and she responds, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, for I am bitter. Look at what God has done to me. Now we've come full circle. The loose ends are getting tied up here. And now Naomi is not to be pitied anymore, but Naomi is to be envied because of what God has done for her. The Lord has provided a redeemer for her. And this is very interesting because notice who gets the credit here. It's not Naomi. They're not saying, Naomi, what a clever plan you had for Ruth to go to Boaz at night and uncover his feet and make him cold and all that. Like, that was really sharp. Naomi, man, you did a good job there. You got him. Way to go. Or Ruth, bold and and that risky move that you took. and, And wow, that was incredible what you did there, you know. Or Boaz, you are the kinsman redeemer and what a great job. But no, who do they praise? They give God the praise. God gets the credit for this in the end. Don't forget to give God the credit. After you come out of one of those valleys, 
know, it's so tempting for us when, when we finally get resolution to whatever our problem is to be like, ah, oh, finally I can move on and to not stop and take the time to praise God who brought us through it, who redeemed us out of it. Whatever the situation was, whatever the brokenness was, whatever the loss was, God needs to get the credit for bringing us out and through it in the end. In our lives, when we face challenges, we, we tend to do two things. We are very quick to assign blame or accept credit. We're very quick, no matter what happens in our life, to assign blame or accept credit. Sometimes we assign the blame to others. Whatever bad is happening to me, it's, it's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. Sometimes we assign the blame to ourselves, and we have self-pity, and we think, oh, woe is me, and oh, if I weren't so stupid, and I didn't do this this way, and so it's all kind of self-loathing. So we're very quick to assign blame when something bad happens. We're also very quick to accept credit when something good happens, and, and you know, oh, look at what I did, and these, these choices that I made, and, and all of that. And there may be some blame that is appropriate, and there may be some credit that is due, but ultimately, who is it that gets credit through everything that happens in our lives? It has to be God who ultimately gets the glory. Even when bad things happen to us, we're supposed to rejoice in all circumstances, even in the bad times. How can we do that? Because we know that God knows everything and is all-powerful, and so whatever happens to us, he is allowed to happen in our lives for a reason. And that's a different perspective. We're very quick to assign blame to, pe to other people or to ourselves, or even in some cases to God, as Naomi did. But we have to recognize the fact that God allows these things to happen in our lives for a reason. And so he is to be praised, and we can rejoice in the fact that God is at work, even though this feels terrible to us right now. And we're experiencing loss and, and devastating things that happen to us. And yet, we know that God allows these things to happen for a reason. Same thing is true when there's something good that happens or when there's resolution to a problem. It's God that needs to get the credit for it because he is working through situations behind the scenes that we can't even understand. And if you read the story of Ruth, you might see all the stuff Naomi does, all the stuff Ruth does, all the stuff Boaz does, and not realize it's God working behind the scenes. But these ladies got it. They got it. They said, the Lord has provided a redeemer for you. You know, the Bible says that every good gift comes from above. Every good thing that happens to you in life can be attributed back to God in some way. Every good thing you do can be attributed to God. Every good thing you do for someone else can ultimately be attributed to God. There is, there is a personal responsibility there on your part. That is true. But ultimately, who is it that enables you to even be able to do that? It is God. And so God gets the glory and the credit for every good thing that happens. Now, the blessing of the women in verse 14 is for the child to be famous in Israel and to restore the youth or to restore the life of Naomi. And that's very interesting to me because it tells me something about Naomi. If someone says, this child is going to restore youth and life to you, what does that mean? You've been acting pretty old. You need some liveliness. You need some energy. You need some strength. You need some vitality. And hopefully this kid's going to do it for you. Because Naomi is someone that was acting discouraged and sad. She was acting a lot older than she had to. And so her friends are saying, ah, this kid's going to give you life again, going to give you youth again. It's going to restore you just to have this young person in your life. It is amazing to see people who are advanced in years, but who are still very young at heart and who remain very youthful and vibrant and filled with energy. And you know, there seems to be a common thread there, which is they hang out with young people in some way. They invest in young people. And maybe it's their grandkids, uh, maybe it's in a, a kid's ministry or a student ministry or something like that, or mentoring young people in some way. 
But it really does seem like as people grow older, if they will stay connected and involved with younger people, it's of great benefit to them. There are different seasons in life that are fairly predictable. The first couple of decades, you're just trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to figure out your identity. Uh, who, who am I? And then in your 20s and 30s, you're kind of growing and learning what you want to do with your life. What is my life going to be all about? So you shift from identity to purpose more in your 20s. And in your 30s, you're refining that even further. You're figuring out what is my career going to be? And let's kind of get this locked down. In your 40s and 50s, you tend to be normally in your sweet spot for productivity. You figured out your career and now you're just, you're doing it and you're working on that stuff. And I know there are exceptions to all of that, but just generically speaking, your forties and fifties are going to be your, your sweet spot for productivity because you figured out a lot of stuff, not everything, but you figured out some of who you are. You figured out some of what you want to do and now you're, you're doing it for 20 years. And then sixties and beyond, typically, these are all generalizations, but sixties and beyond are generally your seasons of greatest influence on other people. Why? Because you've done that. You don't have anything left to prove, and, and you are eventually working your way towards maybe some kind of retirement, and you have a choice at that point. You can either just kind of sit back and relax and do only what you want to do, or you can take that newfound time and, and hopefully some resources that you've saved up and all of that and choose to invest in other people, and this is the season of influence. Earlier, you have a season of identity and a season of career and a season of productivity, and then you end up in a season of influence. And the, the message I would have for you today, if, if I'm describing you and your season of life is, don't ignore your season of influence. Don't ignore your season of influence. Um, this is what the, the women wanted for Naomi, was for her to be able to influence this child, and it would not only allow her to care for this child and be great for the child, but it would also have a benefit for her as well. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says, the glory of the young is their strength. The gray hair of experience is the splendor of the old. You didn't know that, did you? Gray hair is the splendor of the old. Everybody tries to hide it. The Bible says it's the splendor. I'm not trying to make any judgments here, okay? If you want to dye your hair, that's up to you. But the gray hair is the splendor of the old. What does that mean? The gray hair refers to wisdom and experience. It's the idea that, hey, you've lived some life. But here's the thing about splendor. It doesn't do any good when it's locked up at home. It doesn't impact anybody. It doesn't shine. It doesn't show anybody. It doesn't help anybody. And so the idea is that as you go into that season of influence, that is your time to take everything you've learned and everything you've grown in, all that gray hair, and then bless other people with it and influence and invest and mentor and disciple the next generation. And that's what Naomi gets to do with this boy that is born to Ruth. It's, there's great joy in it for her. It's going to restore her youth and give her life and vitality. And so in verse 16, we read, Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast. That means she just held him so close. This was not just a passive thing like, oh, good, there's a kid now. He can care for me when I'm old. No, she loved him and cared for him. It says she cared for him as if he were her own. Look at how Naomi's life has changed from call me bitter to now I have purpose. I have meaning. I have something to live for. What an incredible thing. And she embraced this little boy and cared for him. And then we get to the next thing the neighbor woman said. In verse 17, they say, now at last, Naomi has a son again. You can see this just coming full circle, loose ends getting tied up all over the place. And they named him Obed, and he became the father of, get this, Jesse and the grandfather of David. And this is where things start to get really, really cool. Okay, so hold on to your hats for a minute because this is awesome. If you were 
in, in ancient Israel, reading this book of Ruth, or more likely having the book of Ruth read to you, and you hadn't experienced it before, and you get through this whole story, the whole time you're thinking, wow, this is a great story. It's captive. It's got everything. It's got intrigue. It's got mystery. It's got wonder. It's got redemption. It's got all these great things. And you get to this part, and your mind is blown. Because you're telling me this whole time that this Moabite woman is the great-grandmother of King David? King David, you got to understand, King David was the closest thing to a superhero that ancient Israel had. I mean, this guy was larger than life. He was the greatest king ever. He's the man after God's own heart. I mean, pick your favorite superhero. That's what King David was to these people. And to find out, only real, obviously, and to find out that the story you just listened to, that's King David's grandmother. Wow. And she was a Moabite. Wow. And she had so much brokenness and so much pain in her life. And yet God used all of that to bring about Obed and Jesse and David. What an amazing thing. But it gets even better because Samuel includes at the end of this book, a genealogy. And I know that's your favorite part of the Bible. You just love those genealogies. But Bible nerds are like, yes, genealogy. Who likes the genealogy? Be honest. Anybody like the genealogy? Okay. Faithful witnesses for Christ out there. Genealogies are really, really incredible because they, they make connections for us that we would never see otherwise. And I want to make a few connections for you. First, let me read the genealogical record here in verse 18. This is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. Perez was, was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. I know this is really blessing you right now. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. That's how the book of Ruth ends. That's it. We just finished it. Why the list of names there? I want to give you four reasons why this is so incredible. Actually, four people that are listed in this genealogical record. It's Perez, Boaz, Obed, and David. And we could look at some other stuff too, but I just want to focus on these four guys. And I actually don't want to focus on these four guys. I want to focus on four women that were connected to these four guys that show you how God takes broken, messed up things and uses them for his incredible purposes. Perez was the son of Tamar. Tamar was the woman who dressed up like a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law because her father-in-law would not allow his sons to fulfill the kinsman redeemer requirement that was necessary for Tamar. Tamar's husband died. She should have had a, one of the other brothers that were not married in the family be able to marry her and provide for her. And, and the father, Judas, said, nope, not going to do that. And so um, as a result of that, Tamar takes matters into her own hands, does some messed up stuff. It's a whole weird situation, and it's, it's broken, and it's full of sin. And yet out of that is born the man Perez. And then there's Boaz. Boaz is the son of Rahab. In Matthew chapter 1, you read that Boaz is the son of Rahab. You remember who Rahab is? The prostitute in Jericho who helps the spies and ends up in this lineage right here because she marries Salmon. Salmon that you see there in verse uh, eight, uh, verse, uh, nine, verse 20, rather. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Well, Salmon's wife was Rahab. And so here's Tamar, weird messed up story. Here's Rahab, horrible past and yet completely redeemed. And then Boaz marries Ruth. And then you have Obed, the third guy that I mentioned. And Obed was the son of Ruth. We all know her story now of brokenness and redemption and loss and challenge that God took and used in an amazing way. So there's three of them, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, all right there. And then we get to David. And David ends up marrying Bathsheba. 
through an adulterous relationship and a lot of sin and a lot of brokenness again. And yet, as a result of that, you end up with King Solomon. And right here at King Solomon, we are now 25 generations away from Jesus Christ. My point is that the, the, the weird stuff that I just described to you in the last 30 seconds and the messed up family trees that we're seeing all over the place and, and the sinfulness of people, God is working through all of that and bringing out good out of that, not only in their situations, but for generations to come. And it's this very family, this weird messed up family that God uses to bring Jesus Christ into the world. How amazing is that? And the redemption that Jesus Christ would bring is so much greater than the redemption that Boaz brought to the family by being the kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ comes into the world as God among men, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, lives a perfect life, dies on a cross to, to become our sacrifice for sin so that we can be redeemed to God, so that we can have a relationship with God. Boaz made it possible for Ruth and Naomi to become whole again in their family and in their reputation and in their provision and all the ways we describe those losses, Boaz helps to redeem all that stuff for them. And yet what Jesus does for us is so much greater, so much bigger by redeeming our, our lost souls and our sinfulness and our brokenness and giving us a relationship with God. And so the last point I wanna make for you today is don't miss your chance to be part of the story. Don't miss your chance to be part of the story. If you've never trusted in Jesus and become a part of his family and let him redeem your life, by you doing that, you are entering into this very story that we've just spent weeks going through. It's the continuation of all of this, all the way from Perez, all the way down through the generations to Jesus Christ and you believing in him and becoming a part of God's family. Don't miss your part, chance to be a part of this story. All you have to do is trust in Jesus Admit that you're a sinner. Confess your sin to him. Say, God, I, I know that I need your salvation. I can't do this on my own. I've been trying too long and too hard and it doesn't work. And I need you to redeem me. And he loves to do that and make you a part of his family. And so today we can look back and say that the book of Ruth has such incredible rich meaning to us that they didn't even understand back then because of what it leads to. Not just redemption for this family, but redemption for the entire world. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, what an incredible thing to see your work through the lives of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and people who were caught up in, in such difficult situations and in some cases, bad situations of their own making. And yet you worked through all of it to bring about salvation to the entire world. And then you made sure it was recorded for us so that we could see it and learn from it. And one of the biggest things we learned from it is that you are a God of mercy. You are a God of grace. You are a God who looks at all of the bad decisions we have made and says, I can make something out of that. All the negative things that we've experienced, the things other people have done to us, the tragedy we've experienced in life, the cracks, you look at it and say, I can make something beautiful out of that. And I pray that's what we take away from today, God, that whatever valley we're in right now, we would have hope, and recognize that you have a future for us that is better than what we can imagine because we can't see you working behind the scenes, but we believe that you are doing it. And we trust in you. God, we trust that you have allowed these things in our life for a reason. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to be that ultimate redeemer for us, to die on the cross, to save us from our sin and from the penalty of our sin so that we can have a relationship with you and find freedom in this life 
in our future eternity with you. We thank you for the death of Jesus on the cross, Lord. Such, such pain and agony that you went through so that you could show the depths of your love for us. We thank you for your body, which was broken for us, for your blood, which was poured out for us. And as we take the Lord's Supper today, God, may it be a reminder to us of just how deeply you love and care for each and every one of us. In your name we pray, amen. We do have the great privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And it is a celebration because there's new life in Christ, but it's also a reminder of the sin that's in our own life that made it necessary for Jesus to go to the cross on our behalf. And so as we take the bread, we remember his body. As we take the cup, we remember his blood. We have a chance now to spend some time with God and just say, Lord, is there anything in my life that you died on the cross for? Is there anything right now that I need to surrender to you that I've been doing that I shouldn't do, that I, that I should do, that I haven't been doing? Something, Lord, that you want to work on in my heart. Would you reveal that to me now? As we pass the trays, I wanna encourage you to spend some time doing that. If you're new with us, we do communion a little differently than you may have seen before. As we pass trays, there'll be two cups. You take a stack of two cups. The bottom cup has the bread. The top cup has the juice. If you need a gluten-free wafer, it's in the middle of the tray. Spend some time now, just between you and God, praying and asking him. Maybe it's something from the series. Maybe it's something else that he's bringing to mind. What is there that you need to get right with God today before we remember the death of his son?
Let's hold on to the bread and remember what Jesus did for us in Mark chapter 14. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. Let's take the bread together. And now take the cup. He took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. Let's take the cup together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your body and your blood, which were poured out as a sacrifice for us.